Hey, Fresh Capital listeners, we've got a fun episode this week breaking down our first Indian company, Zomato. Zomato is a food delivery business that aims to transform the eating habits of 1.4 billion people in India, where 90% of the population doesn't eat at restaurants. Zomato is an awesome way to understand businesses like Uber Eats and DoorDash better as it has a lot of unique features that come from solving problems for consumers in their particular business location. Keep listening and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Fresh Capital. Every week we provide a refreshingly simple way to learn about companies and investing. My name is Dan. Joining me, as always, Albert, how are you? Dan, I'm good. When this episode drops, we'll be watching the Final Four tomorrow, UNC Duke. Probably the most intense college basketball rivalry, probably sports rivalry of all time. Playing the Final Four tomorrow, so it's going to be good. Uh, There's a lot of hype in that Albert. For those who just have no idea what Albert is babbling on about, it's a basketball game happening tomorrow in America between two college basketball teams. Albert is a firm fan of UNC. Myself, Duke, though I've never actually been to Duke, while Albert has been to UNC. So there's a strange dynamic there, but I think it'll be a good game to watch. Yeah, it'll be excellent. But you know what's going to be better is uh, listening to this pod. So thank you, everyone. Great transition, Albert. So this week's episode is going to be on Zomato. I think this is our first Indian-based company that we've... uh, Broken first, down, is that yeah, right? Yeah, first Indian-based company. Pretty, um, pretty exciting, but also kind of annoying to read these annual reports because they're non-standardized. <laughs> well, let, let's stick with that for a second, Albert, because I think that that's a good point to raise. It, it's really tough to learn about different companies, particularly when they're overseas in jurisdictions. Which, like, you know, my trading platform that I use, I can't invest in in Zomato, and so all of the helpful information, like summaries of financials and stuff don't come up just googling it and then trying to do a search there all of the revenue and everything else are in different currencies and it's not easy to convert over it's a bit of a minefield isn't it yeah the other thing is even just trying to like do comparisons between different companies like Deliveroo or uber and and you know zomato because reporting and auditing requirements is so different so if you're looking at like the ebitda or you know how they report numbers they're not always directly comparable and like trying to strip away information to understand that, like it does make it pretty complex. So, um, yeah, if, if anyone is looking to understand international companies, like it, it does take a bit more like effort in, in understanding their, not only their business, but their financials in particular. Yeah, don't just read a Motley Fool's article and then think, uh, <laughs> think it's a good time to invest. So let's talk about the business, Albert. You sort of mentioned some, not competitors, because they're not in the same space, but like business uh, businesses. Zomato is uh, a food delivery company for the most part. Like DoorDash, like Uber Eats, they deliver ready-to-eat food to homes. Um, they do this through restaurants, but they've also expanded out to a couple of other parts of that supply chain, that ecosystem, uh, like the food that actually arrives at the restaurants, the farms where food is grown, and that sort of thing, which we'll get into. So it is quite an interesting business because, you know, it's 80% of what we would think of when we think of Uber Eats or Deliveroo, 
but there's that 20% extra, which is, I think, probably come about because of its particular local context, which just makes it an interesting thing to break down. Albert, what's your sort of top line thoughts about Zomato? Yeah, Zomato to me is a pretty interesting business because they've started to expand across that like kitchen tech or food tech value chain. Um, you know, they play in a bunch of different spaces, not just in food delivery, but they think of their business in kind of five different segments. Food delivery, obviously a big one. Then they've got what they call dining out. Um, so part of this is people using the Zomato platform to search and discover different restaurants, read reviews, see the menu, see photos of food that people have uploaded, upload photos, photos themselves, um, as well as book tables, and they can make payments through it. Uh, they've also got a B2B play called HyperPure, where Zomato actually own a bunch of different farms, and then, then they sell restaurant ingredients and supplies to restaurants. Um, as part of HyperPure, they also sell and provide kind of marketing tools and sometimes last mile delivery for food, like, you know, major ingredients and things like that to restaurants. So not from restaurant to consumer, but from their farms to restaurants. Uh, they also operate cloud kitchens and then they've classic moved into subscription services with Zomato Pro. Uh, but how you can think about Zomato is like they've got these service offerings, delivery, dining, etc. But they're, they're basically an aggregation play. They aggregate supply, which is, you know, consu- cons- restaurants, you know, different places to eat out, et cetera, and then demand, which is consumers who are looking to eat out or order food. I think that's a really good summary. And I think what we're maybe lacking here is a little bit of context on India where they're predominantly operating. You know, there's about 1.4 billion people in India. So it is a huge, huge market. And the interesting thing, which um, you know, probably is, is something that's not too well known, is that about 90% of the population don't actually eat out at restaurants. And you can compare that, obviously, to places where we are, like Australia. It's quite common to go out to eat maybe once a week, probably more for most people. Uh, in China, which you might think is maybe a bit of a better comparison given the population size, you know, 58% of people routinely eat out at restaurants in China. So when you're trying to set up a business like Zomato in India, there's sort of two big hurdles. One is just the sheer logistics of facilitating people eating out or getting food delivered because very few households actually own cars. About 2% of households own a car compared to 98% of US households which own a car. Uh, And then the second is just that sort of cultural aspect where people tend to not go out to eat food uh, and one of the culture reasons for that is that you know you just don't go to someone else's house to, to eat from their kitchen you prefer the food from your own kitchen so there's some interesting dynamics there which I think really plays into what Zomato is trying to do which is you know democratize the restaurant eating experience which globally is such a phenomenon but hasn't really taken hold in India. Yeah, that's a good call out, Dan, because, you know, people talk about market size a lot when it comes to assessing companies and the actual opportunity, where part of the market size in India is obviously the population and the number of restaurants. The more people in a country, the more likely that, uh, you know, food delivery business or food aggregated business like Zomato can have customers. But what actually qualifies potential customers is either internet access or smartphone access that enables them to order. And then the second layer is actually like what propensity of customers 
who also have a, of the population who have a smartphone or has internet access actually orders food online. And Zomato estimating about 9% of the total population is their market size at the moment. So, you know, India, obviously a huge population. But when you think about who Zomato is actually targeting, it's really only 9% of that population because you need to qualify those people as to whether they have a smartphone or internet access and the propensity to spend online to get food. So pretty small market size, but rapidly growing because you can start to see how India will eventually follow the same path as, you know, Europe, Australia, the US, China, etc., other developed nations, uh, as more and more people get access to the internet, more and more people get access to, you know, high quality of living, wages, etc. So the urbanization of India as a country should ideally drive Zamata's success in the future. Yeah, and I think that's a really good call out because it flags something that we were talking about just before we started recording, Albert, which is when you start looking at their top line numbers, the thing that really stands out is they don't have that many users. Like it's not what you'd expect. They have about 15 million monthly transacting users. I think if I think of Uber Eats or one of those companies in Australia, I think they have about like a million or so. And it just it just feels way off, doesn't it, that India, a country of like 50 times the population of Australia, uh, and yet they're only about 15 times bigger than Uber Eats in Australia. But that's because, as you say, just the market size in terms of internet access and these other things makes the market quite small at the moment with a lot of potential in the future. Well, so they estimate their market size to be about 50 to 55 million people. So in India, there's about 1.4 billion people. And then of that 1.4 billion, only about half have access to the internet or a smartphone. And then of that, again, half, you know, then you've got to start qualifying people as to whether they order food online. So really, when you've got 15 out of 50, that's not bad market penetration. But from an aggregate perspective, if you say you've got 15 million users in a population of 1.4 billion, like that, that dwarves in comparison. But the number you need to look at is that 50 to 55 million people who are using food delivery services in India and how that number grows over the coming years. All right, Albert. So what excites you about Zomato? Like what interests you when you look at the business? Yeah, so I guess, you know, I, <laughs> I sent you my hot take Last night, Dan, which is like I thought Zomato should be a company that that could be acquired. And now that I think about it um, more and spent you know time today digesting and listening to other podcasts, reading other people's research, doing my own research, is Zomato is an interesting aggregator because it's got a three-sided marketplace and is expanding. So typically, aggregators are two-sided marketplaces. They've built a platform where consumers supply and demand. You know, whoever the business is on that platform start to meet and the platform facilitates that meeting. So a good example is Airbnb. Airbnb is like a two-sided marketplace where you've got people who are looking to rent a short-term or long-term rental and people who've got available short-term, long-term rentals. That's, you know, very two-dimensional. But Zomato started as a two-dimensional marketplace and now are expanding to become a three-dimensional marketplace where they're also a player in the marketplace and they offer services to both the consumer so the, the demand and then the supply by by way of their hyper-pure business. So their hyper-pure business offers restaurants, ingredients, 
marketing, cloud kitchens, a range of different things that enable restaurants to sell. But what I want to hinge on is the ingredients. They offer and sell ingredients that Zomato themselves grow and source to different restaurants. And so they've added this dimension in their marketplace is that restaurants can now sell to consumers on Zomato, but they can also source their ingredients from Zomato itself. And that to me is quite interesting because Zomato is kind of moving into different parts of the food tech value chain. Like if you kind of break down that value chain for a restaurant, first you've got to, you know, supply food, then you've got to cook it, you've got to find customers, you've got to see all the customers there or deliver the customers food, you've got to make the food. Like, like this is obviously not a value chain in order, I'm just spitballing here. Um, but typically restaurants only really play in a few small parts of their value chain and restaurant tech only really plays in a few small parts of their value chain. So like Mr. Yum is really big in Australia. They just play in payments and, and that's it, like menus and payments. But Zomato is really looking to expand entirely across that value chain from letting people pay at restaurants to booking to offering restaurants kitchen infrastructure through cloud kitchens, and we'll talk about that, supplies, ingredients, marketing, you know, booking tables. Zomato is, is trying to cover that entire value chain. And I, I think that play to me is more interesting than their traditional two-sided marketplace. I agree. I think how I viewed their push and their strategy in that respect was it was more forced than by you know, by choice, which, you know, that's fine. I think lots of businesses evolve to meet certain needs, but they have to. And when you look at the environment that Zomato is playing in, I think you really have to understand that it is a growing market. It's nascent, it's underdeveloped in some senses. And so pulling out, well, what's the top line question there? Why are they trying to build their own farms and supply some of these restaurants? Well, it's because the restaurant industry in India is very underdeveloped and is very fragmented. Only about 90 or rather 90% of restaurants in India are sort of like individual stores, mum and pup stores, that sort of thing, where about 10% are chains. And if you think of in a place like Australia or in the United States, chains are very popular, very, very big, which also means that they've got quite sophisticated and robust supply chains where they get their ingredients, they have relationships with farmers, etc. For Zomato to be successful and to entice people to go out to restaurants, they really have to invest in the restaurant ecosystem in India, which I think is why that's what's led them to try and build out the capabilities of these mom and pop stores by supplying them with, you know, really pure, really good food for their restaurants and doing that in sort of a, a targeted way. And then you think on the reverse side, you think of the customer experience. For a population that isn't used to going out and eating out, what's the best way to start driving that cultural change? And we use Zomato here in Australia because they took over or they acquired Urban Spoon, which is like a, a restaurant review uh, website here in Australia. Some of the, the features that Zomato's brought in where it's like, you know, you can take photos of menus, you can leave reviews about food. Uh, you can sort of have your profile linked so it's got your social media on it, etc. All that goes to becoming a social proof for, you know, I've gone out to restaurants, I had a really good fun experience, my friends will see me doing these sorts of activities and then they'll seek to emulate and it destigmatizes it. So 
when you start breaking down the business, I can see a lot of the things that they do are by necessity to develop the restaurant eating out experience in India to a more broader market, as we said at the top. At the moment, smallish market, but really big potential to grow. Yeah, and, and you can see that with even just search and discovery. Like in Zomato, you can type in, you know, talking about Sydney specifically, go to Zomato Sydney, type in pizza restaurant, and it'll, it'll show you and you can rank the best pizza restaurants by number of reviews, their review score, photos, etc. And just even search and discovery is a really powerful tool when it comes to restaurant stand because, like you said, highly fragmented. Like most people go to the same restaurant every other week. Because one, actually learning about restaurants is really hard. Two, you're taking a gamble on the food. Like if you've never been to a restaurant, you're, you, you actually are taking a gamble with your money as to whether the food is going to be good or not versus the food at a restaurant that you already know and enjoy. And so part of what Zamata is doing is addressing that second challenge, which is like actually the food at this restaurant is good and it's not a gamble. And like you said, here's the social proof to show that that's not a gamble. And there, there is a really strong business in search and discovery because Zomato generates a pretty big advertising clip. All they're doing is hosting and aggregating data. Like I said, just an aggregation play. They've just expanded to different parts of that business. And so that itself is already interesting. And then when you add all the other things that Zomato have been forced to do in order to educate and grow the market that they play in, like I think... The thing that calls out to me is like Zamata is probably doing too much all at once. Oh, that's interesting. So then what, what do you want them to be focusing on, Albert? So, uh, you know, they're obviously playing in a pretty big part of this value chain. And part of that is, you know, really efficient. Like to me, just operating a two-sided marketplace, especially at Zomato's size, is relatively efficient. So now what they could focus on is just onboarding more restaurant partners and as they onboard more restaurant partners, you should get that kind of marketplace content flywheel spinning because more partners leads to better discovery, which means more people will use your service. More, more people using your service means you can then attract more restaurant partners to onboard onto Zomato. So if I was Zomato and I was allocating capital, to me, that onboarding piece and onboarding more partners is, is the key lever to be pushing and then leveraging that data into other things that also generates a high margin business for Zomato. So I look at what they're doing in you know their three-sided marketplace with B2B supplies, HyperPure, and I don't think that's an attractive part of their business because it's so capital intensive. Yeah, and I think you've highlighted that these dynamics, two-sided business, three-sided business, a lot of what we're talking about, to use a more colloquial term, is sort of that network effects, which we have talked about certain times on the pod. Um, you know, an example like Facebook, etc., the social media company, is that's a direct uh, network effect where it's like having plus one person on the platform actually has benefits to everyone else on the platform because there's just more people to connect with, engage with, etc., Two-sided platforms like Zomato really commonly have an indirect network effect. Just because there's more people using Zomato, it doesn't necessarily make my experience on the app any better. But if there's more supply, as you're talking about, Albert, if there's more restaurants, if they're building out these relationships, getting the best restaurants on board, 
then me as a consumer, I've got more choice. And so then I add, there is extra value there. And as there's more consumers, then you can get more restaurants on board because there's more demand for them to seek out. So that I think you're right is an area of the two-sided marketplace that Zomato perhaps aren't focusing as much energy in, particularly if you compare them to the Ubers and the DoorDashes of the world who, like when you see them go out into a new market, they go gangbusters really, really quick. They have these partnerships with big chains like McDonald's, et cetera, because they're really just trying to capture as many relationships as possible to create value for consumers and then boost the number of consumers. The last little point I'll make on the network effect there, Albert, which you did touch on, is these data network effects, which you're right, as you have more people using the platform, you get heaps and heaps of valuable data, which they can then use to enhance the value proposition by you know, getting um, troubleshooting so there's less bugs on the app to things like machine learning where you get personalized recommendations for what you want to eat, when you want to eat it, you know, you might uh, really like pizzas on a Friday night and then, you know, the app just pops all the best pizza places up every Friday and just is is perfect for what you need at that time. So there's a lot there for Zomato to be doing. Perhaps it shows a little bit lack of focus, but as we talked about, maybe it's just them trying to develop out the ecosystem a little bit more. Yeah, Zomato does have like a peer-to-peer network effect that like Facebook also has. So, you know, when you talk about as more people use Zomato, whether that impacts you as a user or not, like it it does, but it's asynchronous. So the more people who take photos and leave reviews on Zomato, like the more people actually actively using Zomato to use that feature, the better it it gets for everybody because that's the social proof. So if you've got a restaurant and it has no reviews, but it's actually a really great restaurant, it's probably not going to do that well on Zomato. But the more people who come, make accounts, and then say, here's a photo of my food, this restaurant's five stars or whatever, like that is the asynchronous peer-to-peer network effect of Zomato. Unlike Facebook, though, like they don't interact with each other. I don't know if you can like comment on other people's reviews or be like, this is full of shit or whatever. Like this is, <laughs> you know, like when, when Yelp was paying people to, to, to boost reviews and things like that, so more people would use Yelp. I, I don't know whether um, Zomato is, is guilty of the same thing. But, you know, I absolutely agree on your point around just just focus on onboarding more customers because it is hard to onboard restaurants, and I, particularly in India, right? Like, I've obviously never done it, but you'd have to go to a restaurant that's run by family or some sort of individual who may not be digitally mature and say, we've got this platform called Zomato. Give me all the information about your restaurant, your prices, your address, you know, and everything. And Uber, Deliveroo, Hungry Panda, Easy, whatever you can name it. They're a machine. They hire account managers to do this. They hire people who go and knock on restaurants to do this. Like they're a really, really well well oiled machine. And uh, you know, Uber has literally thousands of people who just go to restaurants, knocks on their doors and onboards them. Or you've got people who manage accounts. Like I know people who work at Uber who just manage the McDonald's account in, say, like Stanmore or whatever. And and they all they do is try to strategically position Macca's Stan Mall as the most prominent thing on Uber Eats. And so Zomato could be focusing on that rather than all the other things they're doing. So I did a simple sprout on this, Albert, a little bit of plug there. I want to get your take. What's your take on grocery delivery? Because that is something that Zomato is moving into. And actually, I say that. I'll, I'll give you some time to prepare your take, Albert. 
Let's hear from our sponsor, Vinovest, uh, and then we'll hear from you on the other side, Albert. You've probably heard of investing in NFTs, trading cards, and art, but the world of investing is even bigger than these niche investments. If you haven't already listened to our episode on alternative investments with the Alt.co founder, Stefan, check it out. Alternative investments are a great way to combine your hobby with great returns, which brings us to this week's sponsor, Vinovest. Vinovest allows you to invest in fine wine, but without the overheads of having a cellar in your basement. Vinovest has a team of world-class sommeliers who evaluate wine and pick the ones that will gain value over time. When you invest with Vinovest, you own the wines in your portfolio outright, and you can buy, sell, or even drink them whenever you want. To check out how to get started with Vinovest, check out the link in our show notes. If you use our link, you'll get two months of fee-free investing, so you can try it out on us. Check it out and help the pod. All right, Albert, let's hear your take on grocery delivery. I'm always, I'm always so um, enthused about our, our advertising partner because they're just like, you know, a year doing this pod, we've got advertising, like that's really cool. My take on, you know, do you mean like how I feel about grocery delivery startups generally or how I feel about grocery delivery as a concept? That's in the business context. And I guess particularly here, when we're talking about focus for Zomato, is this a good focus for them to be moving into or is this something which you think probably doesn't have enough upside to warrant them investing in it at the moment? Yeah, it's a good Good question. I guess I don't know too much about the 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 consumer behaviors of how people in India buy groceries, whether it's predominantly like brick and mortar like we do and we go to a Coles and they go to a Coles equivalent, or whether it's it's more fragmented and decentralized as to like they just source vegetables, meat, bread, etc. from local markets, from kind of peer-to-peer interactions. You know, they grow it themselves, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so I have been to India, but I've never been to like an Indian giant Coles equivalent. So I'm not sure. But in in the first instance, if it is kind of fragmented peer to peer interactions, like I, I don't like that play at all because you're onboarding, you know, thousands, hundreds of partners to do delivery at scale. Whether if you've got Indian grocery stores, and you probably have big Indian grocery stores in in major cities, like you know. Delhi, etc. Um, that to me makes more sense because you've got one area for supply. And if they're doing what um, a few grocery delivery stores here in Australia do, like Milk Run, and setting up dark stores in different suburbs, like, I think that's just a whole different kind of game and area focus for Zomato and just changes their current infrastructure. Like now they've got to set up these stores with the right ingredients or, or food etc. And that is a different game to food delivery and dining out, which is why Uber Eats doesn't do that. I agree. I mean, if anything, I think they've got a better idea with supplying towards restaurants because I think there's two things to that. One is you can almost guarantee that the transaction flow is going to be pretty consistent. Like a restaurant generally will need this amount of eggs, this much of vegetables, this much meat, 
every week, week on, week out, and they're, they're not going to be changing their suppliers willy-nilly. Like they're just going to want it to be very, very routine and stable. Uh, people's grocery habits, particularly as it's a developing area, are much more inconsistent. You might have someone getting online deliveries for a week or two and then stop, and then they're replaced by a new customer with a completely different address, completely different shopping habits, all those sorts of things. So I just think it's it's much harder to seamlessly fit that add-on, that part of the business when you've got all these other moving parts with your food delivery, uh, trying to build up relationships with restaurant partners, doing managing farms and supply chains from there. Like Intuitively, you might think, well, you're delivering veggies from your farm to a restaurant. Why not deliver the same veggies to uh, individuals? I, I think conceptually or impractically rather, it just becomes too hard and I think there's too many nuances there which you need to focus on properly for it to be successful. Is a is a hot take around Zomato just the Shopify of restaurant, of like restaurant tech? It's like Shopify are basically, a, a, you know, a full stack of vertically integrated shopping experience where they not only offer the platform where someone can build an e-commerce site, they offer all the infrastructure you know, they, they do delivery, they've got shipping partners, they've got marketing, they've got payments. Like they've got the entire ecosystem that's required for anyone to build a store. So you don't really have to handle anything. You can just get a Shopify subscription and work through all their services. Is that the same for Zomato? Where if you want to start a restaurant, Zomato are that one-stop stack for you. They can give you the ingredients with their hyper-pure business they can give you the kitchen infrastructure with their cloud kitchen business or their dark kitchen business. They can give you marketing. They can give you search and discovery. Like they can build your website for you um, through their platform. Like, is that the hot take about Zomato? And then the, the resulting thesis is like, it is attractive to be the Shopify of food. That actually sounds like a great business to set up, Albert. I don't think it applies to Zomato though for a very important reason. They have a sort of loose stack at the moment, but they don't have the penetration, I think, to really roll out the stack. And that's because they're not even the biggest player in India. Like you got Swiggy, which is another major food delivery service in India. And I think that really the runway for Shopify was like, who's who's the equivalent of Shopify? I, I think Shopify just got running so quickly and was so you know, ubiquitous, that it just made no sense uh, for a lot of people starting up these online businesses, etc., to go anywhere else if they wanted that full stack. Plus, they had the sort of ecosystem platform play within Shopify itself. So I, I don't see the same dynamics here with Zomato. And I don't necessarily think that a stack would really work because there's just not so many people. The, the market size is too small at the moment, I think, to really play into it i think you need a bit more of a developed marketplace to have a full stack like shopify where people are not only digital savvy but have access to internet etc to be building these businesses and to understand the benefits of a full stack compared to a more fragmented setup and all those sorts of things i guess the challenge for that is like swiggy is predominantly in delivery where zomato has started to diversify where they play and so like zomato they've got their search and discovery business you know, they've got cloud kitchens, they've got all these other things where Swiggy is like obviously leading in delivery in India at the moment, but they're probably not positioned to become 
the Shopify of food in India, whereas Zomato could. I think if they did become that, whether that's attractive to me, it's like probably not because that to me is a very capital intensive business. Like if you've got to do ingredients, supply, et cetera, delivery, and that's not that attractive. But if they became like a jewel marketplace where they connected restaurants to suppliers and they didn't supply their own goods but then supplied other people, then that to me is potentially more attractive because you've already onboarded all the restaurants, which would be the demand. You would just need to onboard the supply, which is whoever supplies food in India. But because that that market is so fragmented, I think doing that is really challenging. I agree. You touched on financials there briefly, Albert. Do we want to pivot to that conversation now? Yeah, I think that conversation was probably me complaining about how hard it is to read these annual reports because they're not <laughs> <laughs> they're not standard. Um, yeah, yeah, Zomato actually they're they're growing in the right direction, and and much like every any other food business um, or food delivery business, you know they they really accelerated as a result of the lockdowns and, and COVID, um, growing pretty well. Um, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, and and to be honest, sometimes it, I find these numbers hard to believe because. Uh, for their their latest Q3 earnings, it, it's not yet um, not yet like gap. So it, it's not like general accepted accounting principles. They've just uploaded their like what the, what they're tracking, uh, and so they call it adjusted revenue. <laughs> um, but you know they they're growing um, in the right direction. Um, they've grown seventy eight percent year on year in the last twelve months. So Q3 last year versus Q3 this year. Um, 70% top line, which is pretty strong growth. Um, the, the key challenge is like how you retain that. Uh, I was reading a statistic um, that it cost about $68, 68 US dollars uh, to acquire a customer for Zomato. And then when you then convert that into Indian rupees, and then you think about how much people actually spend on the platform and the clip that Zomato takes from orders, like it takes a really long time to pay back an acquired customer and then it would probably take a really long time to pay back an acquired restaurant given that you need to physically have someone onboard it and so the challenge for me with Zomato is like can you get the unit economics working as they try to acquire more customers and more restaurant partners because for any marketplace business it really lives and dies by the number of people who use that marketplace. Yeah, and I think you're focusing on the right unit economics. So if you're saying it costs about 68 US dollars uh, to acquire a single customer, their average order for a customer is $7 Australian. So that would be about maybe $5 US. So we're talking about to break, <laughs> to break even on that, let's assume that just like here, Uber Eats, et cetera, take about a 30% or clip of the order size, you know, you're probably talking about a year's worth of just sort of weekly orders by a single customer before you even break even a year plus, which is just such a long time to have someone on your books making order after order uh, just to break even on that acquisition cost. I've got another figure here, Albert, actually. They've got only 1.8 million of their current customers had a order frequency of more than 50 times a year. So, you know, 
I think there was 15 million monthly active users. That breaks down even less to about 2 million users who order once every week on the app. $68 acquisition cost. It, it's the unit economics of that don't work out particularly favorably. Yeah, there's a great write-up um, on Medium by an analyst called uh, Penanti. I don't know what his real name is. But, you know, he did a scan of the S1 or they did a scan of the S1 or their equivalent document, their prospectus when they went to go to IPO. And based on their customer acquisition cost, it would take Zomato four years to break even on that cost, not accounting for churn. And so, the, you know, that's obviously gone up because there's been another year of lockdowns since Zomato went to IPO. But even if that's, you know, halved and takes two years, that's a really long payback period for Zomato. <laughs> and when your entire business model is about trying to onboard and trying to get more and more customers, like that's a really difficult thing to scale when the unit economics aren't working. I think we've uh, broken ourselves out of it. I was willing to be convinced. I, I came in a bit skeptical about Zomato, but <laughs> these numbers just don't add up well, do they? Look, I think there is a case here, and I think this is probably one of those things where someone who's like deep and understanding like Indian accounting can consider and like unpick this business um, because it is difficult to really fully peel back not only the narrative but also the data that supports the narrative from their financials. But, you know, Zomato is growing in the right directions. Customer numbers are growing. Revenue is growing. Obviously, losses are not declining losses are also increased which is not good um and so if you believe that as the country matures and as you know india follows the same path as china the us australia in terms of appetite to deliver food or to order food that's my pun for the day um you know i think zomato could have a really great business but this that may take quite a long time in order to do that all right, Albert, let's take our last break to hear from Zencaster. Have you ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast? There's the microphone, of course, but then editing software, guests, video, audio, a lot goes into podcasting. But podcasting doesn't have to be a challenge. Zencaster's all-in-one web-based solution makes the process quick and painless the way it should be zencaster is what we use for fresh capital because we're obsessed with quality zencaster is one of the only platforms to provide high quality audio and video with every recording and most importantly for albert and i zencaster saves each audio feed locally having locally saved audio means it's easy to fix the moments we talk over each other in post-production. This means I can mute Albert's interjection whenever I'm making one of my amazing points. If you've thought about making your own podcast or have any friends trying out the trade, use our promo code in the show notes for 30% off your first three months. All right, Albert, before we wrap up, let's talk competitors. What have we got in the space fighting with Zomato? I think... Not necessarily competitors because, you know, you've got Swiggy who we've talked about. You've got other cloud kitchen providers. They've got one called Rebel Foods and food services in India. You've got quick service restaurants, McDonald's, Domino's, KFC. Had McDonald's and KFC in India, it's exactly the same if you believe it. 
Um, I think just the biggest competitor that Zamata has is like behavior in India. Like food in a lot of these countries is a, a like a family and dining experience. Like people all eat together, you know, cooking as a family or cooking in large batches is a, is a big part of the culture. And so for Zomato, they've really got to challenge how people put food in their lives and how people think about food as opposed to being like an experience that you share with your family and something that, you know, they, they could spend hours doing cooking for a bunch of different people, getting everyone from your extended family, et cetera, around to being, you know, something that you just sit and order in as part of other things you're doing in life. And the reason why food delivery is really big in Western countries is because that's not as ingrained within culture here, but also we just lead very different lives. And so challenging that part of Indian lifestyle is is a challenge for Zomato, which is probably why you've only got 50 million out of 1.4 billion people who use food delivery services. Yeah, it's a really, really rough uh, marketplace for trying to be running a business, but I think that's where the opportunity is. Um, like, before getting to our verdicts out, but I, I think all I could say about that is probably the biggest opportunities for companies come when they are working somewhat against the grain because they're not only creating the opportunity, but they get to sort of define that marketplace. And I don't think it's far-fetched to think this concept of eating out, which has been so successful in other parts of the world and has converted different areas into that way of thinking, that sort of lifestyle, do I think India is so unique that it won't take hold there? No, not really. I, th- I think it's just a question of when rather than if. And if you believe that, then I think Zomato is a really compelling business because it's in a, a space which could be set to explode maybe five years from now, maybe 10 years from now. But as long as they can sort of stay alive uh, and prof- well, not profitable, but you know, stay alive without going under with all their marketing fees, etc., they're probably set up for success in the long run. Um, that's, as, that's as good as I can sort of paint it out. But. It's one of those um, tech businesses where we haven't really talked about international expansion because they don't necessarily need to expand internationally to be successful. Like you've got $1.4 billion. What you need to do is work out a way as a business to change the behaviours of the $1.35 billion who aren't ordering online. And that to me is a behemoth task to do. Totally, totally. And I guess it, it starts with the user experience, right? Like I was thinking what would be an example of that and maybe it's something like there was a time where no one even thought of using a computer operating system that wasn't Microsoft and now you've got Apple and that's because they just had such a great user experience and it sort of started from the bottom up, that sort of grassroots movement. And so maybe they've only got what was it, 15 million monthly active users, if they're really happy with the service, if they're evangelicals, they're selling the platform to their friends, letting everyone they know know about it, letting their family know, etc., then that will start to have an exponential curve to it in the same way that Apple did. Where now, I didn't realize this, but it's like 70% of um, Americans within sort of like a under 30 age bracket have got an iPhone. I was like, damn, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's a real opportunity, I think, here for Zomato. Um, but let's get to our verdicts, Albert. Yeah, I think they're an interesting business and probably one that I'm going to keep watching because if they become the, the Shopify of food tech, 
that that to me is a pretty interesting model to to analyze and and dissect. So to me, I'm going to put it on like the watch list as to like, let's see how this business continues to perform and and what their moves are and and how that market grows. Yeah, I'm not going to even put it on my watch list, Albert. There's a lot of really interesting businesses out there. This one doesn't break the mold for me. Um, I think it's in a good space. There's just no compelling reason for me that it's going to start turning the switch in the next couple of years. Cultural sort of hesitancy or cultural headwinds, I think, are probably the most difficult ones to tackle because it's not like finding a technical solution to a problem. It is, as you're sort of talking about, it's literally going up to people's doors, talking to them, having one-to-one conversations and converting people individually, restaurants individually, customers individually takes a long time takes a lot of effort um i'm sure they can do it but uh, i'm not in it for that long of a time horizon i don't think so it's off my watch list it's off everything for me i think as a more macro thing would you do would we cover another indian company on this podcast again well let's uh peek open the curtain i'm the one who chose zamado i'm open to doing another one but i found it really hard to find a publicly listed indian uh company which was sort of interesting in our sort of space of a bit more tech a bit more of a modern business you know we're not going to be doing i don't know like an oil or gas refinery or something like that so you got any front front of your mind Albert? i some of their they've got like a big conglomerate called tata so maybe tata but there's probably too much and and part of it very not interesting and part of it interesting uh, i think you know reliance their their telco is also interesting but you know we've, there's a lot of interesting companies I don't want to bore the users with us spitballing or our listeners spitballing <laughs> Indian companies. Just know whatever comes next week is going to be really great and interesting. <laughs> Let's finish up there. Thank you for listening to the Fresh Capital Podcast, a podcast about companies and investing told in a refreshingly simple way. Until next week, have a good one.